Hi, everyone. We have a very special announcement to share with you. So as you know, we started Carrying Wayward almost a year ago, and thanks to all of our listeners and supporters, we've actually recorded over 40 episodes, a few minisodes, and also a couple of special events. We know some of you have been asking for more content, like longer episodes, more interaction, more events, and yes, bingo cards. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten. They are (laughs) in the pipeline. (laughs) Yep, and guess what, Wayward Friends? We've decided to start a Patreon. So our weekly episodes will remain free, but if you're interested in some extra content and perks, you should have a look at our Patreon tiers. Yep, our tiers start at just $3 a month, Choose the one that fits you best. We're offering perks like exclusive access to a Discord server where you can chat with Mary and I daily, post-show content, free access to monthly live events, and some producer-level shout-outs right in the podcast. The support of our patrons will actually allow us to pay for our existing expenses, like the rights for our intro music, our Google Drive, but also things like upgrading some of our recording equipment and also investing in making some merch because we have lots of fun merch ideas. Oh, we do. So go check it out. Patreon.com slash Carrying Wayward. The link is available on all of our social media channels. Don't hesitate to reach out to Mary or I if you have any questions. All right, Drew, we've got work to do. Yes, we do. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 16, Roadkill. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, so Drew, I know that I start, I, we basically ended the recording last week and I said I am very excited for next week because I love that episode. So can you like give me an idea of what you thought about the episode before we go into the recap? I will admit watching it, I had forgotten you had said that. So I didn't have, I went in very blank. Like I don't think I even remember you commenting that ultimately loved it, but going through it, I was very confused. I'm like, this felt like a season one, episode three. This felt very much like let's explain how demon hunting and ghosts work. This is rock salt. This felt like Fisher Price's My First Ghost Killing. Well, are you ready to maybe give us a recap and then we can dive into this episode a little bit more? Count me in. Three, two, one, go. We get our classic cold open of couple who's likely not going to survive the episode. I guess I'm right in saying that technically 50% weird. We'll talk. They see a ghost. There's a car crash. Uh, The car vanishes. She can't find her husband. She's running around looking for David. And then she runs into the boys who decide to help her. And this whole time, there's kind of this level of like, "Mm, they're not telling her everything. And I guess we're supposed to assume it's that her husband's dead, which is what I assumed. And a lot of exposition and explaining how to fight ghosts. And then Molly does everything she can to do the things you're not to do in a horror movie, like stand with your back to a window. Oh my God, I was yelling at her. But we get a lot of exposition about ghosts and education about ghosts only for this big reveal after they do get the ghost of this dead farmer we find out that molly was a ghost the whole time and they even make a sixth sense joke in there somewhere they talk a bit about the what happens to ghosts after they leave and it's left up to ambiguous but still really cool 
and she gets to leave peacefully. The end. I feel like I missed something. Like, I feel like there's like a, I guess the middle was just a lot of like stretched out interaction without much real story consequence. I have thoughts about this, but let's keep them for story time. Okay. So how about we get to our long game? Like you said, we find out a lot about spirits and ghosts in this episode. One of the things that we do find out is that the way that spirits are like in their afterlife as spirits is not necessarily the way that they were when they were human. Jonah Greeley is kind of the best example of this. Like he, I don't know if you noticed, but he looks a lot like Bobby Singer. Yeah, I can kind of see that. You know, he wrote love letters to his wife and yet in his afterlife as a spirit, you know, he tortures the same woman every year for 15 years. So clearly like there's a huge disconnect in like the personality of the person when they're alive and when they're a spirit. Of course, that's not quite the case for our other character, Molly, but that's, I guess, another story. I have thoughts about that. We'll get into them more, I think, during the story time, but I do have thoughts about that. Great. And it's also said that we don't know what happens to spirits after their bones are burned. And I think that that's something that's interesting at this moment. So we'll find out a bit later about that, but I figure that it would be important to notice that right now we don't know what happens to spirits. And I like that it's brought up because it is kind of one of those like unspoken, just this is a thing. But it's true, like, like you kind of have the joke, like, you kill a demon, does it go to double hell? Like, how does that work? <laughs> to super mega hell? Super, super mega ultra hell, go. <laughs> With that, though, shall we dive into story time? We shall. I told you that I really like this episode already, and I'm even going to say that it's probably one of my favorites. I don't know why, okay? I know that this is not a well-liked episode. I really like it. And I'm wondering maybe if it's because it's it's an episode that doesn't actually focus on the brothers. I just really love the narrative of finding out about Jonah and who he was, and then finding out about Molly and what she is. Like, I think that I just love those stories where the second watch feels so different from the first watch. And this is really, this is, this is one of those, right? Like, especially when you rewatch and pay attention to the acting of Jared Jensen, you start realizing that, you know, Sam and Dean knew all along what was happening. I legitimately had a moment, like I'm taking notes as I watch, I always do right around the end as they were like burning his body. I'm literally writing like the motives of this ghost don't make sense. Like, I do not understand what they were trying to get across here. This seems like such a weird episode, like something feels so off. And then they make the reveal that she was a ghost the whole time. And this was, she caused his death. And this is his revenge as a ghost. And I'm like, never mind. This makes perfect sense now. Even the way they go back and kind of do like a quick recap of the episode through the boy's eyes with all the things they already know. It's really well done. And I think this is an amazing episode to have for a show like this, where I'm going into it completely blind and you're going in with the knowledge of what is actually happening. To me, looking back, you're right, it's a great episode. Watching it for the first time, like, basically for the, like, blind, it just felt very out of place and weird. Like, it felt like it was missing something. And I'm not, sh- and again, like, I'm not sure how to fix this for once. Like, I don't think I have a, a, a like, here's what I would have done differently. So far in these episodes, like in the, in the, the two seasons that we've watched, what we've seen have been episodes that have been... <laughs> more or less consistent with one another. But now we're starting to see those like quote unquote out of place episodes, like Tall Tales, 
Tall Tales didn't quite feel like a supernatural episode that we had seen nope, previously. Not even a little. <laughs> <laughs> and this one also feels a little different. So we're starting to see those like episodes with personality. I think that is what makes a show so good is when you're able to have those episodes that are, I don't want to say inconsequential, but help build the world and give us story and give us lore. You know, like, I'd not say the, the episodes that deal with the brothers and their emotions and their relationships aren't valuable. They're the core of the series, but they're made all the more important when they're not the focus of every single episode. See, this is what I find really interesting about this, because, you know, usually we spend most of story time, like, focusing, like, on the minutia of each episode, and like, oh, look at what Dean says when this happens, like, oh, I love him so much. Yeah, okay, so I know that I make a very good impression of myself. <laughs> That's basically what happens. Like, we focus on the little things. But for this one, we can't really do that because there isn't that much, right? So I thought that instead of focusing on the, on the details, why don't we pull some themes from the story and see how these apply to Sam and Dean? Are you game? I'm game, yeah. And of course, if there's a theme that, like, I haven't thought of, like, by all means, throw it in, okay? Will do. So the first one that I thought about was truth-telling. Uh, you know, because Sam and Dean are not quite telling the full truth at the beginning of the episode. Then they're telling her, like, a half-truth. And then Sam almost tells the truth. And then Dean, you know, says that the truth is going to make her run the other way. And then in the end, it's the truth that sets her free. So I was kind of wondering how that relates to the brothers. Well, I mean, the whole time, I mean, this is one of those things I did peg right away, which was the Sam trying to be the honest one, trying to connect to the person trying to make them comfortable and like move forward whereas Dean usually is the one to just try to solve the problem and not be as connected to people which is why his lies are usually a little more believable and a little easier to him but in this case that even Sam being honest is technically lying still that it, it has a really interesting layer the whole kind of you know like lying through omission like d like this doesn't feel out of character for dean but looking back especially when they first reveal like that ghosts are a thing that first moment there and she like freaks out i actually can you remind me who tells her it's ghosts for some reason i think it's sam but I'm not sure. That should have been a giveaway that something was up and it didn't hit me right away. But looking back, it definitely was. It's being honest, but like there's so much not being said. It's like ghosts are real. Oh, and by the way, you're one, but we're not going to tell you, <laughs> you know, like, yes, it's a very big piece of the puzzle to omit. So, yes, it's it's the truth is not fully told here. And of course, like I can't help but like bring it back to the truth that Dean had to tell Sam and that Sam had to like deal with in the past few episodes. Speaking of that, the next thing that I have on my list is acceptance because Molly, you know, has to accept a difficult truth first about Jonah being a ghost and then accepting that she is a ghost. And so again, like that sort of reminded me of how Sam has had to accept a very difficult truth about himself that he doesn't quite fully understand. It's a very apt description. I mean, as you were saying it too, I, I kept trying to like make the connection, but it's a really obvious connection with Sam. I mean, we have Sam being told something. He is something that he doesn't necessarily believe and sort of having to accept it. I know we've kind of reached a point where he accepts it, but is still trying to fight it. Or at least he's trying to like maybe atone, preemptively atone for it, I think is what's happening, which is very much so. Yeah. Very Catholic of him, frankly. <laughs> There's definitely something there, I think. How do you think that that applies to Dean? Dean has many things about himself that he needs to learn to accept and he's still too afraid to face 
And again, we're talking about a monster, you know, I don't like him, blah, 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 blah. Like, it just feels like, again, the whole sexuality, you know, sexual identity thing seems to come back up in a very coded way this time. But still, you know, like the fact that he's talking about monsters, doesn't like them, doesn't feel for them, blah, blah, blah. A theme about acceptance of who you are. Dean, accept your bisexuality. <laughs> for an episode that doesn't really focus on the boys, the message really hits home on Dean on this one. And again, it seems like it's kind of flowing really nicely about like letting go also. So letting go was another one that I thought was interesting because Jonah had to let go of his revenge. Yes, of course, like through his death, right? Like he was not... He, he did not really have a choice. He was, he, his revenge was pried out of his hands, quite literally. Molly, on the other hand, let go of David and her own unfinished business. And that was, you know, as graceful as can be, walking into the sunrise and whatnot. Uh, but there's also the idea of not being able to let go. And I think that that does apply to Jonah a little bit more than actual letting go. But there's also Marion, his wife, who killed herself because she, she couldn't let go of her husband. Molly who hung on to like her life as a ghost to just to be able to see David again the duality between Jonah and Molly the two different ways of letting go or you know dealing with your unfinished business one being forced and the other one accepting it willingly I think is a very kind of poetic end to these two ghosts now does I'm trying to figure out how it connects to the boys though so who do you think is having trouble letting go and who is has an easier time letting go? I think like there's so many instances you could like pick. Like let's just go with the whole Dean has to kill Sam scenario and Sam has very much accepted that Dean can do this and Dean is very much the yeah, you'll kill me before I kill you. But I feel like if we go into like other aspects of the way they deal with things, it might vary a bit from case to case, but in the real big ones you know, Sam is very much the I believe in destiny. So if it has to happen, let it happen. I accept this and will let go of anything, including his own life. And Dean is very much the no, 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 you're going to pull me out. You're kicking and screaming. I feel like I'm always bringing it up, but obviously I have to bring up faith and he, how it was like completely reversed in that one where Sam couldn't let go of Dean and Dean was ready to let go of his own life. You're absolutely right when you say that there are so many angles to take and that I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer here. I think that, you know, that duality itself kind of allows the boys to go from one to the other. Another thing that also comes back, and I know that I've been harping a lot about this, but like it's the idea of what is or isn't a monster. You know, because Molly calls Jonah a monster, and Molly's certainly not human, but is she a monster? Like she's not inflicting harm on anyone. But yet Dean sees her as a monster, but Sam humanizes her. And like the note that I have here is that Sam humanizes and Dean demonizes. Dean's first instinct with anything is usually the it's supernatural, it bad, me shoot, big gun. Whereas, <laughs> I accurate. mean, that's, No, that it's is true. You're right. Yeah. Accurate. Whereas Sam, who I, I think being in the shoes that he's in where he kind of has to play the role of According to Yellow Eyes, I might be something supernatural, which Dean, you would call bad, as we've discussed in the past. And throughout the show, we've seen, I mean, the very obvious example would be the vampires who have chosen to not go after humans and were trying to just live their lives and not be evil. They're not evil. They're just different. Heck, I'd still even say I know both our shapeshifters have been malicious, but 
those seem like conscious choices versus being evil because they're shapeshifters. Like, I mean, theoretically, a shapeshifter could very well live in society without, in human society, without a hitch. It would, it would be flawless. So I agree. I think this just goes to further that point, which I feel like is something the show has really been pushing in the last season and a half, almost two seasons now, is that monster or other doesn't mean bad. It's a perception. And yes, albeit so far, most monsters of the week have been, well, monsters. Some of them have been good and some of the monsters have been humans. Some could say that monsters are, uh, in a way, a social construct. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Right? Like, I mean, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just who decides what is or isn't a monster. Sure, by their nature, vampires are, quote unquote, bad because they kill humans. But, like, do we feel that way about other, like, creatures on Earth who kill humans? Do we feel this way about, like, I don't know, lions or tigers or bears? Do we consider winter evil for the fact that it kills all the plants? That's something that the show is trying to, to have us ask ourselves. And again, if we try to bring it back to the, to the boys, like, is Sam a monster? Is Dean a monster? Because Dean sees himself as a killer, so does that mean that he's a monster? You know, Sam has psychic powers and potentially has an ability to, you know, listen to the yellow-eyed demon somehow and do its bidding. Do we consider him a monster? Like, it, it, it's, it asks those questions of us. It doesn't get answered yet. And again, like, I don't think it gets answered even at the end of the series. So it'll be up to us to come up with an answer, I suppose. Well... I'll be, I'll be happy to reach that conclusion with you in many, many years. <laughs> well, then the last theme that kind of like jumped up at me is the idea of the shift in perspective. Because this episode, you know, usually we see episodes from the perspective of Sam and Dean. A little bit more like what we saw at the very end when they're explaining what happened. But in this one, we're truly seeing the story as experienced by Molly. And I think that that's why it felt so off to you, because it felt like we were meeting the brothers again for the first time and learning about hunting again for the first time. It felt like the reason for the episode was to re-explain these things to the audience, like solidify the lore for the sake of the audience, which felt like a very weird thing to be doing at the end of season two almost. But then when you do finally have that moment of reflection and go, oh, Molly is a surrogate for the audience and we are watching it through Molly's eyes, essentially, it would make sense that if we were the first time we'd have these questions. That's exactly it, right? And we're, we're seeing that. And that's basically narratively written into the episode. How does the shift in perspective fit with the boys? I think it kind of marries well with the what is a monster. It's a shift in perspective. I mean, these two were raised with the thought of monsters bad kill monsters. And throughout these last basically two seasons, we've seen them encounter things that are not necessarily monsters or things that aren't monsters being monsters and, you know, certain hunters who uh, may have gone off the deep end. And even here, I mean, we have 
a textbook ghost, as they said, they're after it because it causes accidents and people die, and that's why they're initially here to deal with it, but ultimately it's just an innocent soul who's lost and confused and needs help moving on. She is not a monster. Do you feel like either of the boys has a shift in perspective in this episode? Because I don't. Like, this is not a trick question. I think this episode really cements things we know about the boys and these themes, but doesn't give us anything new. I don't think we learn anything in this one. I think it's like, I, I like to see it as an interlude. I think that that's why I like it because it's not necessary. You could remove that episode entirely from the season and it wouldn't matter. A lot of people give shit to shows for having filler episodes, but I think filler episodes that are able to help elaborate the story or build lore and do something good for the series as a whole are some of the most valuable episodes a show can give you. Is there anything else that you noticed in the episode that we should bring up in story time? All my points were hit. I'm happy to move into critical time if you are. Absolutely. Let's go. So who do we have to thank for this very interesting episode? We have Ryle Tucker to thank for this one. She wrote it. She wrote in season one with Sarah Gamble, Dead in the Water, Faith, Nightmare, and Salvation. And then in season two, she wrote on, on her own solo credit, uh, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things and Hunted. And this is actually her penultimate episode for Supernatural. There's going to be a shift in the writing team as of season three. And remember also like just while we're in critical time, this is the right time to address it, that season three happens to collide or to, to coincide with the writer's strike. Oh, true. We're going to see some changes there too. There's going to be a lot of stuff to discuss critically there. But yes, there is a change in the, in the writer's room and the writer's rotation coming up. As always, I have some issues with the episodes that Rael Tucker writes, but I find that this one is just like narratively pleasing. I think there's something to be said when you have someone writing something and that you kind of get that hall pass of you don't need to fit in some major key seasonal plot point. And I think that's why some filler episodes, it can really be hit or miss because sometimes it's like they're so shallow because there is no stakes versus a sh an episode like this where, yeah, there was no bigger picture revelations, but it was just well, it was a, it was a well-told story without that could be left out if need be. I want to commend the show for actually taking a chance with this episode because they could have just like put a filler episode with like uh, any, you know, vampire, ghost, whatever, but they chose to take a chance in the way that they told the story. And I really do think that it pays off. Like this is like, remember how in season one, sometimes we were like, oh my God, another filler episode. I cannot take it anymore. Whereas here I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm fully aware that this is a filler episode, but I'm actually happy about it. Like this is fun to watch. I love a filler episode because usually they're pretty bad. Like I have like to, to put re two really different examples on the table. Avatar The Last Airbender, one of my all time favorite shows, has some of the worst filler episodes ever. Like when they put a filler episode in, it is purely a like they had a number of they had a number of boxes to fill and they missed it by one. And they wrote like some of the worst episodes of the series to the point where one of their like series recap episodes at the end of the final season pay like literally has a line where they reference. We're just going to gloss over that section for now. 
Like they actively call themselves out. If I can just say that, like Supernatural does that too. Like it's very meta in the sense that like in a future episode, you're going to hear a character referring to an episode as bad. The other example I give is a show that I know you've watched where I feel like though it does do a lot of filler episodes, almost everyone is like iconic. And that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Some of the episodes I can distinctly call out as fil filler, I think a great example being Once More With Feeling, the musical episode. That is, that is pure filler, but ends with one of the most shocking reveals of the season at the end of that episode. <laughs> this is why I like filler episodes, is sometimes they can be magic, and other times they can really just be like a letdown, unfortunately, so. Now for the director, this was directed by Charles Beeson, who also directed Playthings. So he is going to be directing quite a few episodes from now on, so we'll be able to track uh, his track record, I suppose. As much as I harped on it in story time, I do like the refresher course on lore, both the positive side of kind of discussing salt and even giving a bit of that, like, I don't know how obvious it is. For me, it always was the whole, like, if you spill salt, it's good luck to throw some over your shoulder. I did do a little Googling on salt to see if, like, because again, I've always sort of accepted it as a thing to, like, protect from spirits. And I'm just sort of like in a general read through. I, it, it's a very boring subject, but just a lot of cultures did use salt in different things. Uh, in fact, it's even believed that salt water, which was used in some ancient cultures, is what sort of sparked the idea of holy water in modern Christianity. But a lot of different religions do use salt as a either a... Uh, a holy element or a connection to a higher power or a god was a god who oversaw salt and they were often a, a higher god and then also being used for protection in different cultures as well including wicca it's a very vague history of salt in the spiritual sense but there is enough out there and i feel like it's one of those things that's been so established in just the lore and mythology of demons and creatures the pouring salt thing that it doesn't really, it feels like lore that's been built itself. Like I didn't find it. And now I kind of regret not looking deeper to find out exactly where the protecting yourselves from spirits comes from with salt. Like we clearly have, we clearly have an origin in the fact that a lot of religions use salt for spiritual ceremony, but I would love to get deeper into that, I think. So that's going to be, I'll find time to do it again, but we'll find, we'll, we'll make it happen. I was going to say, we have quite a few ghost episodes coming up anyway, so that's definitely going to be a possibility. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> do we get another ghost running around the woods yelling, David, over and over again like this episode? <laughs> oh my God, I, while we're talking about other shows, this is just like one of those things I just need to bring up for the sake of our audience. I'm sure someone else is thinking it and, want, and just wants to hear someone else acknowledge it. Even the way she says the word, the name David, she sounds like Moira from uh, Shit's Creek. There's just like a, a, something in her voice when she's yelling it over and over again. Like, I don't think it's intentional because the show also predates it by a long time. But it's just it's really funny that like all I could do is picture Moira Rose's character running around yelling David while looking for her lost son or husband. That was, That's all I had. I just refresh her course on Ghosts and Spirits. The lore about salt, Moira, the sound of Moira yelling for David. Uh, and as I said in my recap, I just feel like Molly was constantly doing the like what not to do in a horror film cliches. That's probably also like one of the like one of the narrative devices of the episode, right? They're like, 
this person should be dead, but she's not. Why? Oh, that's actually kind of funny. I didn't even think of it that way. That's really good. Oh, yeah? Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I'm not even a horror movie person. <laughs> yeah, the idea that she's doing all the wrong things, but somehow surviving because she already is dead. Oh, I like that. That is, that is I, I, I say cute, but I, yeah, it's kind of cute. Tongue <laughs> it in is, cheek. isn't it? I mean, this is like cute in the supernatural sense. <laughs> yes. Shall we see what our community has to share with us this week? Oh, yes. This week, we have a voicemail from Ruby. Let's listen in. Hey, this is Ruby. So I've been listening to episode three, uh, Bugs, which is in episode. (laughs) But uh, one thing I haven't seen uh, much talk about, at least on the show yet, uh, is something I first noticed in this episode. with Dean at the cookout, um, the like open house that they have where uh, Sammy's trying to find information out. uh, And Dean is also trying to find information out, but he's being more snarky and he keeps uh, looking at the food and nibbling at the food um, and just like taking advantage of it. And this is something I noticed when I was first watching the show in this episode and something that continues um, throughout the entire series, which is a huge difference between Dean and Sammy, which, and often gets brought up by Sammy, um, which is that Sammy um, is a much pickier eater. He tries to eat healthy. Uh, He tries to buy salads at gas stations. Um, He tends to, if he doesn't like what's on offer, um, he'll quirk an eyebrow at Dean eating um, so often. He'll refuse meals. um, And... It's interesting compared to Dean, who basically every time he's offered food or there's just food in the vicinity, he will eat it. Um, And usually it's like comfort food um, or quote unquote junk food, burgers, fries, dining things. Um, He's just eating every single time he can eat. Uh, And it's a fairly consistent Dean trait. If there is food, Dean will probably be eating. Uh, And it's often made fun of by other characters, by the way it's filmed, by Sammy. Um, But if you're reading it as not being written by flawed people or as Jensen just liking food... (laughs) It's a really interesting look into uh, Dean and Sammy's childhood and the different ways in which they were brought up because uh, Dean, when he is offered food, eats food. And it's 
this is something that is often a trait of um, adults who grew up with bad childhoods who didn't know when their next meal was going to be. This is a trait of someone who has gone hungry at least once before. Um, whereas Sammy doesn't ever seem to worry about it. I feel like it's one of the first like really good background insights we get into their childhood of Dean being raised as a soldier, as a warrior, as a weapon by John and Sammy being trained by John and raised by Dean who made sure that Sammy got to be an actual person, an actual child who didn't have to worry about things like where his next meal was coming from. Ruby, thank you so much for sending us this voicemail. This is just such a perfect episode to talk about this because we mentioned bugs in this episode very briefly. And for some reason also, there was a beautiful thread written about Dean's eating on Twitter that was posted just a few days ago. I'd like to quote from it. This is from Twitter user The Buy Flannel, who is just like doing absolute wonderful work in terms of trying to understand and deconstruct why Dean eats the way that he does. And I think that Ruby, you've also done a really wonderful job because this is true. You're right. Like this is the eating pattern of somebody who has gone without, right? So let me read a little bit from this thread. We know that Dean had experienced hunger as a child. He had to skip meals so there would be enough food for Sam. The scarcity is later in adulthood replaced with overindulgence, food, alcohol, sex. Dean was very disciplined in following his father's rules and protecting Sam was a priority. I can imagine going hungry was turning into a badge of honor and hunger meant that Dean was doing his best. And when hunger starts to feel like praise, feeling full means you have failed. And that is starting to sound like disordered thinking. There have been some studies for example, the Minnesota starvation experiments that shows that restricted calorie intake may cause intrusive food thoughts and twists the relationship with food. So that, in the context of the way that Dean's hunger is depicted, gets kind of interesting and sad, as the bioflannel explains. So yeah, I think that Dean has really internalized that idea that like the first person who should eat is Sam. That's why he went without when he was younger. And so now that he can actually afford to eat, he overindulges whenever it's there. Oh, that is such a heavy reading. Like, it's so accurate and it's so real. I'm going to pull from a very different source for this one. On the side, on top of doing this podcast, I also do some very off-the-books voice acting for a few YouTube channels, and one of them very much focuses on the television show My 600-Pound Life, where... Having never seen the show, but only reading the scripts provided to me about the show and the YouTube channel, I have come to learn that, a, not that I didn't know before, but to sort of see it in more solid facts, that a lot of children who suffer from parental abuse or sexual abuse or assaults or rape 
tend to turn to food for comfort. So having a character who is constantly wrestling with his own identity and I mean, on top of the fact that as everything else was said, he probably wasn't able to eat as comfortably when he was younger, that he probably did often go hungry, both because either punishment by John or punishing himself because he had to give something to to Sam before himself. I mean, it makes sense that now food for him is a comfort. It's something he can control. And it's almost, I, I think to even reverse a little bit, I think now it's the fact that he's able to do it. It's a badge of honor that he's allowed to eat when he wants to or indulge when he can. You have to be careful that it's to say when, when you say that it's a badge of honor that he can, because I think that it's all, always associated with guilt. I think that whenever he overindulges in food, there is a, a, a sense of guilt that he doesn't quite understand. I think it definitely there, there isn't an angle of that as well, but I kind of look at the the hedonistic side of it. He allows himself to indulge because it's his right to indulge because he's allowed to enjoy life when he can. Do you think that Dean would really think that way? Yeah, if you compare it to sex, the same way he's sort of had this. And as much as we, we have discussed, the chauvinistic attitude is definitely a mask in some ways. There is still a part of him that sees himself able to take control of his own life and make his own choices and do what he wants. I feel like the food is the same thing. Like he had to go so long where food was a thing that he shouldn't have because it's scarce or he shouldn't have because others need that when he's allowed to indulge himself yes there's definitely that guilty side but I feel like the guilt comes after when he has to look back upon it but in the moment it's just the pleasure yes of course like there's the the, the pleasure of being able to actually eat food when you haven't had access to it because you're superimposing food and sex which is which is fine but like keep in mind that here we're talking about dean being told that he should put sam beforehand and so the idea is that i don't eat until sam eats right that's the whole idea that he kind of put in his head so food was almost like, in a way, prohibited to a certain degree, right? At least it was very heavily restricted. If we're going to superimpose food and sex, then we absolutely have to superimpose sex with the same sex. Because John never would have told Dean not to have sex with women, but he certainly would have made him understand that he would not approve of sex with men. And so... I think that Dean approaches food the same way he would approach sex with men, probably with a, a lot of like desire, but certainly a lot of shame and guilt after the fact. Well put. Well, thank you so much, Ruby, for, for yes, this thank you. <laughs> incredibly sad observation, but a, a very necessary one. Shall we move on to our Crossroads deal? Let's. Would you like to start? I would love to, because I don't know how to word it. <laughs> Okay, maybe I can help you with that. Okay, I think I made it clear my only major complaint with this episode was how much it felt like it should have been earlier in the series in the sense, and as I know we discovered later on, it was done because Molly kind of acted as like a new audience, a new fresh pair of eyes. She had to kind of play that role. I don't know how to do this for once. I feel like I often put on the writer cap and give my like alternate take, but I would have liked to have not had that feeling, if that makes any sense. It makes sense. <laughs> It makes sense, but I guess I, I like it's not something that I would want, so I have trouble relating to it, but I absolutely understand what you're saying. Had I not had that nag in me throughout the episode that made me kept going, like, why is this episode happening like the la in the second half of season two? Like, why now? Had I not had that inkling the entire way through, it would have made the episode stronger. Do you want to hear something really funny? Oh, no. What? 
I'm going in the completely opposite yes! direction. Do it, do it. What is it? Come on, give it to me. I, I, my wish is that we hadn't, like, that we didn't get that flashback of the boys. Oh. Yeah, I wish that, like, it had been, that had been kept a bit more in the subtext so that upon second watch, when you really pay attention to those moments, that's when you see it. I really do like that. Unfortunately, it tells us even less. So, like, you would have felt even more lost. So I'm not sure that you really like that. (laughs) So, again, here is where the writing hat comes on. I think there are moments I look back on in their, the way they speak to her and about the situation that make more sense in hindsight. And I think they maybe could have exemplified that more while downplaying the need to explain everything to her. Like kind of, I feel like, in, I, cause I, here's the thing is I feel like other episodes they've done the explaining stuff without it feeling nearly as ham fisted. Like I feel like almost every few episodes we have the, indoctrinating indoctrinating someone new into the supernatural world but it's never but it's never felt as like clumsy as it did in this episode yeah it felt very robotic it felt like there was like it felt very season one episode four we have to teach the audience this stuff so it makes sense down the road it felt very out of place here so i feel like if they could have replaced those with more moments that had us kind of be like oh that feels weird only to go back later and go oh because she's a ghost. But ultimately, I mean, as our crossroads often do, they lead us down this lovely path to finding a better episode. And ultimately, there isn't much to fix. Like, yeah, there's little nitpicks, but this was a very well put together episode and one that I know you call one of your favorites and I can definitely see it staying up in my top 10 for a while. Yeah. I mean, honestly, when I watch, when I rewatch season two, this is definitely one of them that I, I, I never skip. I never skip this one. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Shulman. This week, we'd like to thank Ruby for her voicemail. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us and interact with us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to grow our community, and this is the best way to do that. Don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Until next week. Carry on, our wayward friends. Maybe if I can word, that would work. Words is good. You could words word Words is them. good. I can word.